The title of today's message is Living Sacrifices, and the text is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now, this title is a provocative title, Living Sacrifices, and what it draws to mind is the first century practice in the Jewish temple of bringing living sacrifices, animals, and offering them up on an altar to worship God. And that's exactly the image that God wants you to hold in your head during this entire sermon. Why? Because the sermon is about worship. The sermon, this passage, is about worship. Worship is at the very core of the human being. We were made to worship. The question isn't, will you worship? The question is, who or what will you worship? In our fallen condition, we worship creation rather than worshiping the creator. In fact, on the screen, one of the first verses that Paul gives us in this letter to the Romans is Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. And he outlines this problem of the human heart, of the human condition. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Friends, we in our fallen condition are serial idolaters. That's the definition of idolatry. Worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It's the condition of our fallen humanity. It's the condition of every heart here that has not been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And even those of us that have been redeemed, the gravitational pull of our heart is still to kind of creep back to serving the creation. Serving myself, usually. This creation, rather than the creator. And it's the gospel that Paul introduces. Actually, he introduces the gospel before he introduces the problem that the gospel solves. Because in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the verses preceding these we just read, he gives us the solution. Here is what Romans is about. These two verses are the the main thematic verses of the book of Romans. Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Living by faith means that we worship the creator, not the creation. So let's read what that looks like. Let's read what it looks like to live by faith, what it looks like to worship God. But before we do, let me pray for you all. Lord, again, I come to you this morning, and I pray that you would guide our hearts. Lord, those that have no other choice but to worship the creation rather than the creator, because they're dead to you. They're in bondage to their sin with no hope. They're not even aware that they might need a savior. But maybe, just maybe, by your spirit right now, you're beginning to make them aware. There's an uneasiness arising in their hearts and minds. Would you open their minds 
Give life to their dead hearts. Hearing to their deaf ears. Sight to their blind eyes that they might see. Repent and believe in Christ. And for those of us that believe in you, Lord, but there is this thing called indwelling sin. It's like when I take my hands off the steering wheel, if my wheels are a little out of line, they're going to pull to one side or the other. And there's something in me that pulls me at times to worship the creation, Father. I worship. It's more important what others think of me than what you think of me at times. The approval of man is more important to me than your approval, Father. I begin to crave creation and forget the creator. Forgive me. Draw our hearts back to a worship of you as we read your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 12.1, in your Bibles, if you do not have a Bible, I ask you to get one. If you are not looking at a Bible right now, I appeal to you as your friend and your pastor. Open one up digitally, physically. Not metaphorically, actually, open a Bible. And if you can't have one or you don't have one and you're too embarrassed to go back on that table and get one, at least look, look on with someone. Because these are God's words, his very words. Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love to watch sports. Saturdays, when I'm not preaching, are the best days of the week, because I can watch sports all day. I love college football. As much as I love to watch college football and sports, my wife, Desiree, and my daughter, Stephanie, love to watch programs about the arts and particularly dance, both dance and singing. And so occasionally when I come home from work and maybe I'm having my dinner and they've got one of these shows on, you know, I'll watch it. And actually, I've grown to appreciate it and enjoy it. You know? Uh, and so this one, this one program was about a young Korean-American high school student. She's a dancer. Her name is Grace. Actually, she was a ballerina. That was her specialty. And, and this is the story of Grace, this young high school student, whose one vision, who's, who the thing that captured her life and her heart was that she wanted to be a professional dancer with a top-flight dance company. And this vision filled her eyes, and it filled her life. It defined her, and the cameras followed her morning, noon, and night. It defined everything she did. It it really defined the trajectory of her life, starting with the magnet high school that she attended in Los Angeles that was for the arts, to the hours and hours she spent training for ballet, the muscles that she had to develop. I must say, it is very athletic, amazing what they can do to the very friends that she had, to the things that she studied. In fact, in one scene, it's late at night. She's been at school. She's been dancing all day. She's now helping her parents in her parents' grocery store in L.A., this Korean family. And you see her up on her, up on her toes doing a little pirouette, but she doesn't have ballet shoes on. She's got her chucks on. And she's just consumed with it. This is, this is what she lives for, the vision of being a professional dancer. 
in a prestigious ballet company or a prestigious dance company. This vision defines the trajectory of her life. And so in our text, dear friends, the vision of God's mercy defines the trajectory of our lives. And that trajectory isn't to be a professional dancer. It's to be a worshiper of God. The mercy of God changes a trajectory that was idolatrous and worship creation over creator into being worshipers of God. See, that's the main point really here of this text. Worship God. It is what Paul is appealing to. In verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices. He knew the image he was conjuring up with that term. Worship God. And it's, and it's a gospel appeal. Because God's mercy produces worship of God in the heart of every person who's been captivated by that mercy. See, the vision of God's mercy is the fuel for our worship of God. God's mercy turns idolaters into worshipers of God. It is what causes our heart to want to worship the creator rather than the creation. It is what changes a heart that is wired to worship creation to now worship the creator. It's what even awakens that heart to the, even the possibility of worshiping God, the category of worshiping God, even alerting us to maybe I'm not worshiping God, I'm worshiping something else. It is God's mercy that does this. And it is God's mercy revealed in Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. See, God's mercy in Christ is what causes our hearts to want to worship God. Apart from the new birth in Christ, our hearts are unwilling, unaware, and unable to worship God. And that's why I want to appeal to you, unbeliever, this morning as you're seated here. Thank you for coming. But I pray that you would repent and believe in Christ, for it is in Him that God's mercies are revealed. How, do you ask? Here's how they're revealed. Jesus Christ, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, came to earth to live this perfect life that you and I could never live on our own. This life that God requires of us. And then He willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins in our hearts, the rebellion in our hearts against God, the lack of worship. And he poured out his blood that we sang about. And then on the third day, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity in action, signaling that God the Father received the penalty, received the payment of Christ's death on the cross for the penalties of our sins. And having raised and ascended into heaven, then the Father and the Son poured out upon us the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand this. There's the gospel. There, dear unbelievers, what I appeal for you to believe and see your need of so that we, you, we all might worship God. This imperative here is to reverse the sin of Romans 1, 23 and 24. Mercy fuels our worship of God. And that's the first point. The fuel of our worship is God's mercy. Paul has been appealing 
to the mercy of God for the last 11 chapters, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11. It's an, it's an explanation of God's mercy in the text. And specifically, at the end of chapter 11, in verses 32 to 36, look at that in your Bible, the verses just preceding our text this morning. Paul concludes his explanation of the gospel, of the mercy of God with these words. For God, Romans eleven thirty two. for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, if you're here this morning and don't know him, God has consigned you to that so he might have mercy upon you. He's having mercy upon us in Christ. Corey said it this way last week, quoting from his message. God is not done with us yet. Let's wait for the rest of the story to unfold. Engineered to display his sovereign mercy and glory. From him is mystery. Through him is mercy. To him be glory. Friends, God's mystery is revealed in Jesus Christ on the cross, the place where his mercy is most clearly revealed. The cross is the glory of God because it reveals the mercy of God in Christ. It's the place where mercy is revealed. And that mercy then, is the fuel that fuels the trajectory of our lives toward worshiping God. The one who has been redeemed by the mercies of God is now free to worship God. We are not free apart from this mercy to worship God. We're in bondage to all those false idols that never deliver. We're in bondage apart from Christ to worshiping man's opinions of us and living for man's approval of us us rather than God's approval. When I recently learned of some situations that for me communicated the opposite of man's approval, (laughs) it affected me more than it should have because I had let a little bit of the creation creep into my worship and God's approval of me in Christ wasn't enough. So I craved the approval of others and it kind of affected me way more than it should have. Man's approval will never satisfy. You can never get enough of it. We're in bondage to our anger because we want to be God and we get angry when we don't get our way. When I analyze my anger, it's typically I'm not getting what I want. And we're in bondage to it, some of us more than others. We're in bondage to our pride when our opinions aren't celebrated, when our plans aren't completed. We're in bondage, some of us, to behaviors and addictions that destroy our bodies, our relationships, our families, and our very souls. But Jesus comes, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Paul preaches throughout the first 11 chapters of Romans, he comes and he sets us free so that we might then present our bodies. Look at the text, chapter 1, or chapter, verse 1, chapter 12, as living holy and acceptable sacrifices. Look at that word present. Please put your finger on that word present. That word present is a word that hearkens to the sacrificial system of Israel. That word present, Paul used on purpose because it gives them the idea of grabbing that ox or that bull, 
boom, putting it on the altar. No one can do that. Maybe Ray Morlick can grab a bull and put him on the altar. Okay, so adjust that metaphor. Okay, I'm not a first century Jew in the temple, but you get the idea. It's the idea of presenting something that is for the worship of God. And so what Paul is saying here, what God is saying here is, I want you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. I want you to worship God. It's purposeful. It conjures up the idea of the temple. And what Paul wants us to understand is that Jesus has fulfilled that sacrificial system in his body. We read about it in Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 during communion. If the blood of heifers and bulls and goats can cleanse to one level, how much more will the blood of Christ once and for all sacrifice, once and for all in the heavenly temple, in the heavenly altar, his blood cleanse us from all a dead conscience to serve the living God. So what Paul is saying here is present your bodies, worship language. And when he says bodies, he doesn't just mean your physical body. Nope. He's using that for your entire being. Everything you are, body, soul, spirit, everything. Present your bodies as what? I want you to see these three adjectives in verse 1. As living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Actually, all three of them are describing the sacrifice. That's us. We present ourselves as living, holy, and acceptable sacrifices. What does living mean? Living means that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. I mean, yeah, we're living alive, but it means more than that. It means that we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. As Romans 6.11 says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. How about holy? What does holy mean? In this sense, it doesn't necessarily mean pure without sin, like holier than thou. No. The idea of holy there is one who is set aside for God. If something's holy, that means I've set it aside for God. That makes it holy. And so we, as God's people, are set aside for God by the blood of Jesus. This is always what God has been after. 1,500 years earlier from the writing of this text, in approximately 1500 B.C., Moses penned the following words on Mount Sinai, and these words are God's words to Israel, his people. Listen to what God says to his people in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. We're we're capturing this idea of holy. What does it mean to be a holy sacrifice? It means to be set aside for God. And why does God want to set us aside? Because he's always wanted a people. Listen, God speaking, Exodus 19, 5. Now, therefore, if you, Israel, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. I'd say that's being set aside for God. You're mine. Among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of God. They couldn't keep his commandments. But Jesus came 1,500 years later and kept God's commandments. So that Peter is able to write 1,500 years later and quote from Exodus 19 and says, God has achieved his purpose in Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 But you, O Christian, you, O believer in Jesus Christ, Jew or Greek, you are a chosen race. 
You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. He's borrowing right from Exodus 19. That a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, that's you. That's me. By the mercies of God. God's mercies fuel our trajectory to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. That is to worship him with all that we are. God will always have his people. And we are those people. Holy sacrifices. And finally, acceptable. Acceptable. Listen, saints of God, we don't belong to this world. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. We're his possession. Holy, and we're acceptable. We're made acceptable by the blood of Jesus. This sermon is made acceptable by the blood of Jesus. The giving that you give today is made acceptable by the blood of Jesus. This change that I give is made acceptable by the blood of Jesus. And when Don and the the George family goes and gives it to a family in the form of a check or food or help or, or a card for public so that they can get groceries, that's made acceptable by the blood of Jesus. That's what we celebrated in communion. God's mercies in Christ. They're the cause of our worship. They're the fuel of our worship. Not only do we offer ourselves because of the mercies of God, it's his mercy that enables me each day to keep offering myself. It's not a once, one-time deal. Okay, I'm saved. I believe in the mercies of God in Christ. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. Now I've just got to work this out all my life and offer myself as a living sacrifice on my own strength. No. The idea here is that his mercies are the fuel of my worship. Don't you remember the scripture? It's there for us. His mercies are new every morning. And I need them every morning. My cup leaks. God's mercy, inexhaustible. My ability to comprehend it and understand it, exhaustible. That's why I'm appealing to you. Think about the mercies of God this morning. That's what's going to fuel your worship. Ongoingly. See, this is what it means to live by faith. To live by faith, which is what we do as Christians, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the righteous shall live by faith in Christ. What it looks like now is mapped out for us starting in Romans 12, 1, all the way through to Romans 15, 21. The next three chapters we're going to be reading have a lot of imperatives. They have a lot of, well, if you've received the mercy of God, then this is what you do and, and what you don't do. But don't forget, they're fueled by the mercies. They're grounded by the mercies. They're caused by the mercies. The mercies empower us. This is the gospel. This is what it means to live by faith in Christ alone which is what we're called to do. He shows us what it looks like to worship God. I love what Tom Schreiner says here. And this showing what it looks like to worship God isn't talking about the worship service. It's talking about everyday life. Schreiner in his commentary says this, the worship described here does not relate to public assemblies, but to the yielding of one's whole life to God in the concrete reality of everyday existence. Do you see there where it says your spiritual service of worship or your spiritual worship? That word spiritual could also be translated reasonable. In other words, what Paul is saying is it's reasonable for you to live for the one who died for you so that you wouldn't die eternally. It's reasonable for you to give your life 
to the one who gave his life for you. It's reasonable for you to worship the God who had mercy on you. It's reasonable. It's your spiritual worship. And it's based on the mercies of God. So what does it look like for you to worship God in everyday life, dear saint? What are God's mercies in Christ calling forth in your life, in your daily schedule, in your home, in your work, in your career? The fuel of that worship is the mercy of God. And the fruit of that worship, what it looks like, is the will of God. Point two, the fruit of our worship, God's will. Verse two describes what it looks like to worship God, what it looks like to live by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Here's what it looks like. Two things. The first one, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. You see that? Verse two, do not be conformed to this world. When he says this world, he's talking about this world system. He's talking about the values of a kingdom, the world's kingdom, that are in direct opposition to the values of God. Things like, how do I view mankind? Is man a creature who owes his worship to the creator? Or is man a free agent? Because we don't believe in creationism. We believe in evolution. Therefore, he doesn't owe a creator because there isn't any. He doesn't owe him anything. And taking from that point, is man basically good and he's going to be formed by his environment? Or is man basically bad because he sinned by not worshiping his creator and he needs a savior? The world's values about mankind, the world's values about money. Is money something, is money something that I view as a creature under the stewardship of my creator and something that I use to serve my creator and serve one another? Or is money, as a free agent, (laughs) something that I use others to get? Do I use money to serve others? Or do I use others to get money? We We can drift, can't we, folks? We can drift. We can drift when it's time to write that tie check. No one writes a tie check anymore. When it's time to hit that button for online giving. We can drift. Are we being conformed to the world? And finally, marriage. Marriage. What does it mean to not be conformed to the world? These are just three examples. They all begin with M, mankind, money, marriage. Well, if, if I have a biblical view of myself as a creature and God is my creator and he has, ord- he has described marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 by his design as between one man and one woman, then I'm obeying that. But if I view myself as a free agent, God, who's God? I'm God. God's all around me. There's no, there's no creator. We got here by time, chance, energy. And, uh, you know, I put the parts of, of this iPhone, I take this iPhone apart, I put the parts of the iPhone in a, plastic, in a paper bag, I shake it up with enough energy and enough time, and out will pop an iPhone, right? Right. But you know what the advantage of that one is? There's no one I have to answer to, because no one made the iPhone. So if that's how you believe, then guess what? Hey, we're free to define marriage any way we want, to include same-sex marriage. Don't be conformed to that. God's vision of mercy, the the vision of God's mercy in our lives fuels our worship of God so that we no longer present our bodies, our members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Romans 6, 13 and 14 says the following. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. The grace of God is the mercy of God. So by the grace of God, put to death the sinful nature. Don't be conformed to the world, 
but be transformed then, the next point, what it looks like to worship God. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible here is teaching us that the way we change is that God's word by God's spirit comes and changes our thinking, our minds, convicts our hearts about what is right and wrong. I gave you some illustrations earlier with mankind, money, and marriage. We're transformed as God's spirit begins to use God's word to change how we interpret life. All of us live life. All of us worship what we think will bring the ultimate good to us. So if our thoughts about God, others, and ourselves are skewed, they're off, we've adopted the values of the world, then we will worship the wrong thing and the wrong person. The the word comes in and says, by the mercies of God, see God as a good God because you see him through the cross, through his mercy. And if God gave his son to die for your sins, how much more will he give you all things? So think rightly about God. The Bible says, think rightly about others. See them as those made in the image of God. And as those made in the image of God, then we want to honor them and serve them and love them. The Bible, the Bible tells me, view your wife as a fellow heir of the inheritance you have in Christ. And thus treat her with honor. It changes my thinking. And the Bible sees my, it helps me see myself as a servant of God. Rather than me thinking, I'm king, I'm the free agent, I'm God. The Bible says, no, you're a servant. Even as Christ came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life. So you're a servant. And so as that starts happening, I'm transformed in my thinking. I'm transformed. The mercy of God is what does that. How is that, Al? Well, look at this text, 2 Corinthians 3.18 on the screen. It seems to teach us that we are transformed in our thinking. We're transformed as we behold the glory of God. And remember, the glory of God is seen in the mercy of God. When Moses said, show me your glory, God showed him his mercy. The glory of the cross, the mercy of God is revealed in the cross. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. How does God transform us? How does this renewal of our mind occur? Look. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God transforms us as we have a vision of his glory. This is the gospel. This is what it means to live by faith in Christ alone. This is what it means to live a gospel-centered life, a Christ-centered life. This is the vision that encapsulates us and captures us, not only determining the trajectory of our lives, the worship of God, but the very things we do and don't do. Remember Grace, the Korean-American dancer? Her vision fueled her trajectory. In life. Upon graduation from this high school, she went on to attend Juilliard, one of the most prestigious schools for the arts in New York City, studying dance. And upon graduation from Juilliard, she landed a place on one of the iconic dance companies in New York City. Grace Vision defined her trajectory. Grace Vision defined her life, where she ended up. This text tells us that our vision of the mercy of God defines us. 
The appeal comes based on the mercy of God. It is the mercy of God that is new every morning that gives us the power to say no to the world and yes to God. It is this vision that I bid you to adopt and allow to encompass your mind through his word. I conclude with a quote from John Stott summarizing these first two verses. Paul's appeal is addressed to the people of God, grounded on the mercies of God, and concerned with the will of God. Only a vision of his mercy will inspire us to present our bodies to him and allow him to transform us according to his will. A vision of God's mercy transforms us according to God's will, all for God's glory. What's the defining vision of your life, church? Is it the mercy of God? Is it that what you are most aware of right now? Does the cross amaze you? Does grace amaze you every day? Whom do you worship? Whom or what is your functional God? Let us pray. Lord, I I thank you for your goodness and your mercies that are new every morning. And I thank you that the fountain of those mercies is found at the cross that place that you determined before time, that place where Christ Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the perfect man, was crucified for our sins, that you might be merciful to those who do not deserve your mercy. We deserve your judgment, and you remain just by giving us instead your mercy because you judge the one who did not deserve it. And he willingly took the penalty for our sins that we might receive your mercy. Mercy fresh. Mercy new. Mercy that fuels our worship of you, Father. Mercy that produces the fruit of this worship, which is your will, your good, acceptable, and perfect will. Lord, in the past, we were ignorant. We did not discern what was good and right what was truly worthy. We worshiped that which was worthless. And when you saved us, oh Lord, you enable us to worship that which is ultimately worthy of our worship. And that's you. Lord, it is that worship that we want to do as we conclude here this morning. Receive our worship, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.